when I came out of rehab, it was my old man. He said, well, you know, why don't you, why don't you jump on a bike again? And at the time I was not really into it, but I thought, you know, he's pestering me. I'm going to just do it to shut him up. And um, <laughs> it's probably the best thing, honestly, like the best thing I've ever done. Like I went for one ride and I remember going back to work that day and I was looking at bikes, like I needed to buy a, a bike. I wanted my own bike. I was hooked. Hello and welcome back to King of the Ride podcast. I am Ted King. I'm happy to be here. I'm very happy to be here, in fact. Now, I don't want to put the cart ahead of the horse, but I uh, I have a couple podcasts in the bank right now, a little bit of a stored inventory for the, the weeks and months ahead. I really enjoy doing these podcasts, but 2020, they were a bit more, shall we say, hit or miss. So I'm excited to see what we have in store for 2021. I thank you for listening along. I'm excited to have Jack Thompson on the show today. Jack has very rightfully earned the nickname Jack Ultra Cyclist. He doesn't exactly know where or when that name latched onto him, but but given that among his other records, he does carry the title of the Guinness Book of World Records, the most distance covered on a bike in a week. I would say that he is a worthy title holder. In that particular adventure, in that particular event, he logged 3,500 kilometers, that is, uh, that's about eh, more than 300 miles every day for one week straight. Uh, that's like condensing the distance of a grand tour into a single week. Let me, let me take a moment, interrupt myself, and highly suggest that you check out A, Jack's YouTube channel, but then B, specifically search out a video titled From the Inside Out, Cycling Through the Challenges of a World Record. Now, this video really opens up the struggles that Jack has dealt with over the course of his life and where the bike has fit in as a form of therapy. It is one heck of a lot of what we're going to cover today in the show. So let's let's just continue the trajectory that we are on right now with you and me, our listener, with Jack as our guest. Listen through this podcast. Listen through this conversation. Gain a sliver of insight into, into this Jack ultra cyclist character. I know you're going to enjoy it. And then watch the video or videos, I should say, because there is that particular video of the 3,500-kilometer record, but then he has other super impressive, highly cinematic, beautifully done videos that, that I know you are going to enjoy. So I'll keep the intro short. That's all I got. This is a really fun conversation. Next up, my conversation with Jack Thompson. over there you look like it's pretty cold yeah it is do you speak fahrenheit at all or are you entirely a celsius kind of guy i'm pretty like i'll nod and pretend i understand fahrenheit but i'm a celsius sort of dude okay so i gotta do some quick math uh it's zero degrees fahrenheit which is probably about negative 20 <laughs> and this, we're in a bit of a cold snap, so this is uh, this is atypical. Uh, it is lovely. It it you know, my understanding of Australian cyclists is you guys do a really great job of chasing warm weather year round. Like when yeah. it gets a little bit cold in Girona, it means it's like oh, it's time to go back to Oz. Yeah. Uh, whereas here, yeah, you just gotta. There's a reason I'm here in my retirement. And not in the middle of a, a, a aspiring world tour career. So, 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's good. You know, it keeps you diversified. You got to enjoy the snow, a little fat biking. Uh, I've done three different sports in the past two days between fat biking, Nordic skiing, and and alpine touring. So nice. It's good living, man. It's good living. Where are you? You're in uh, Girona, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm in Girona. This is like the first time I've actually done like a proper uh, like European winter. Yeah. Um, How's the weather been? But it's actually not too bad. Like it's chilly in the mornings. Like. I say chilly, not chilly on your standards, but like, you know, you have to wear gloves and stuff. So it's not all bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, yeah, then during the day it warms up. So I think tomorrow it's 15 degrees top. So it's, it's good. Like sure. you can't complain. Oh, you can get by with that. No problem. Okay, yeah. cool. So we have Jack Thompson, Jack Ultra Cyclist on the podcast today. Um, I think we're going to jump all over the the chronology of your life and, and your time on two wheels and then your time on two feet. Um, but you are, you know, with, with a nickname like Ultra Cyclist, you got, you got some ridiculous long time in the saddle to your name. Um, I think one of the most notable is in 2017... If I got my facts straight, you did over fifty thousand k, which is which is to our American audience over thirty one thousand miles in a twelve month period. Um, presumably, that was on purpose. I want you to expound on each of those things. So, so starting there, tell me about your twenty seventeen. So it's it's a funny one because that was never planned. What what actually happened was I left. I decided I wanted to leave work and I wanted to try and make a living out of riding a bike. And so I sort of left work and I had nothing really planned. I had no work lined up and I just had a lot of time to ride a bike and sort of think about how I was going to try and make a living out of it. Uh And so I basically just spent my time riding and, you know, I'd get up in the morning in Australia, everyone rides super early. So I'd get up at five and I'd go say to 50 kilometers with my old man and a group of his mates. And then I'd sort of go and have coffee with them. And then I thought, no, seven o'clock, I've still got all day. (laughs) And I just sort of just keep riding. And I didn't do a lot of travel that year. And I think that made it a little bit easier. Uh, But I sort of started working on a couple of projects and sort of worked out the direction that I wanted to go in. And just so happened at the end of the year, it had clocked over just over 50,000. So I thought, oh, it's, you know, it's not, a, not a bad year on the bike. That is, that is bananas. By, by comparison, I think I did, I did just shy of 25,000 K or 15,000 miles in 2020, which that blew me away. Like if you told me I did 10,000 miles last year, I would have been shocked. Do you have off the top of your head, do you know what you did in 2020? I don't know, to be honest, because a lot of it was on a trainer as well. Because yeah. of COVID. Oh, right. Yeah, so Spain, trainer, yeah. Yeah, I didn't really keep track while on the Wahoo, but yeah, yeah. it's definitely not up a 50,000. Nowhere near it, I don't reckon. Okay. 35, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> a drop in the bucket. Um, And then how about uh the next year, 2018, you do the, the Taiwan KOM. So yeah, open up that can of worms for a minute. Yeah, so we had... Like I'd had this idea, I want to try and do something and film it and just see what we can do with it. Uh-huh. And I was literally sitting in a coffee shop with a mate and it was, would have probably been July. And we were thinking, you know, what can we do and how can we try and get some eyeballs on what we're doing? And we're thinking, oh, you know, we could go to like another event and try and piggyback on an event where there's already media and bits and pieces there. Mm-hmm. And we were sort of looking at the calendar and being based in Australia, not a lot happens in the Southern Hemisphere cycling wise and we thought oh there's taiwan kom 
And I'd been in Taiwan the year before and sort of explored a little bit more just for fun. And uh, we looked at the event and we thought, well, why don't we go and do that climb a couple of times? And it was literally like picking a number out of a hat how many times we were going to do it. I thought, yeah, why don't we do it four? Four sounds pretty impressive. <laughs> Thanks, even so number. I, why not? Yeah. I, we basically, it was so amateur. Like I got my old man to come over and he drove the car when we were there. And I got another mate who's a photographer and another mate who happened to be a filmmaker. And we thought, oh, why don't we just go over and see what we can produce? And we went over there and it was, it was, it was like real good fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. But it was also, um, that was sort of the first time I'd really like fleshed out publicly like my struggles with mental health and how I used the bike to overcome that. Uh-huh. And that video was really well received, I think, because I spoke about that and was very honest with it. And from there, I started sort of taking it a little bit more professionally and that, you know, I thought, you know, there's an opportunity here to really do something cool with the cycling and actually, you know, spread a message. Yeah. Um, and from there, we've basically progressed each year, sort of choosing multiple bits and pieces to do. And which, yeah, I guess you want to jump into the next one, which was. Well, yeah. So, to not to gloss over that one, I mean, that was, according to my stats, 720K, uh, which would be what? Not quite 500 miles. Um, and 13,000 meters of climbing in 56 hours. Um, yeah. So, just an absurd number of statistics that you tick over. Um, I do want to talk about media. I want to talk about everything you just touched on. Let's let's keep going to the next year because I think this is one of the best. And folks, if you haven't seen Jack on, on YouTube, please just type in his name, what, Jack Ultra Cyclist, and you'll find all yeah, of these things. Cool. 2019, I love this. Three Everests in three countries on three con- in three consecutive days. So uh, yeah. yeah, open that one up. So that, again, it was like, on the back of a fag packet sort of deal, like I had a plan to do an event in Europe, like a challenge around based around the Tour de France. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, we couldn't get the funding to make that happen. And so I was actually in Bhutan of all places running a tour over there. Mm-hmm. And I was chatting with one of the guys on the tour who, who was a mate from back home and we were sort of saying, you know, what can I do? And he said, well, I think you still need to do something like with a grand tour theme. And then we're thinking and, Thought, well, why don't we? You know, Everest thing sort of started to become a thing. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we? Why don't I? You know, there's three grand tours: Italy, France, and Spain. Why don't I Everest the highest paved pass in Italy, France, Italy, France, and Spain? And why don't we try and do it all in three days? So to try and put like a time constraint on it. And so again, I contacted the old man. I said, hey, Dad, you up for a bit of a road trip? Yeah. He said, yes. Got my mate, the filmmaker, and my mate Zach again, and we came over to uh, started off in uh, – I forget the first climb now. Um, you did – well, according Stelvio. to – you were doing Stelvio, if, so long as what we're watching is, is chronological. So you start with 5.6 times up the Stelvio, yeah. which is kind of fascinating. I love that because – in the age of Everesting, you know, people are doing one super short, steep climb like 120 times. And you yeah. say, no, screw that. Let's just do a wicked long one only a few times. <laughs> That's bananas. The Stelvio is a super hard climb to Everest because yeah. you start counting how many switchbacks you're actually doing because it's a reminder on every corner, as you know. <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, you know, I need 300 more to go. And yeah. <laughs> it's torturous. I mean, yeah, that. Well, let's t- let's start talking about that in the, for the in the first place. Like, 
the distances that you're covering is a physical challenge, no question about that. It's sort of unfathomable to your mind to when you start doing mental math and mental arithmetic. I mean, whether it's counting down the Ks, counting down the hours, counting down the the switchbacks. Like how yeah. do you how do you deal with with that level of uh, amplitude of volume of distance of time? Do you like how do you tick through the time? I, I work it sort of just quite simply. So I'll think say like Stelvio is five point six. Mm-hmm. So I break that down into a percentage. So the first point six I sort of disregard because it's not even yeah. a full climb. So already <laughs> that's sort of point gone. <laughs> then you got five. So every climb is basically twenty percent. Uh-huh. So if you say every time you're going up, you're knocking off twenty percent. Uh-huh. In my mind, that doesn't seem that bad. Like you've only got to do five of them. Yeah, yeah. And I sort of break it down in a way that I find really manageable. And then it's just a matter of, you know, I play tricks with myself. Like I'll listen to music on one and then the next one I won't listen to music. And then my reward is I'll listen to music. And it's sort of always yeah. like rewarding and torturing and rewarding and torturing yourself so that you've, you've always got something that you're looking forward to. Yeah. Do you ever... Are you ever looking towards the end? Are you, say you take an event that you know the distance, for example, like the next one I want to talk about was a 1200 kilometer trip from Spain to Portugal. Are you counting down 1200 Ks or do you? Nah, so I break that up into days. Uh So like that one, for example, I work at how many days I think it's going to take. So like two days. Yeah. And then I'll break that down into 48 hours. Uh-huh. And I think, well, I'm only on the bike for 48 hours. It's not really that bad. <laughs> so it's all, I try and put it into perspective, like a greater perspective. Yeah. And I wouldn't say I'm tricking myself, but it's just enabling myself to, it then becomes a manageable thing to overcome. If I was sure. counting down kilometer after kilometer, I think that would be really tedious. Yeah. Completely agree. How about, I want to talk about your training and I'm tiptoeing around how to ask this because what I've found in in super long distance events, whether it's a long distance that I'm going to cover in a particular day or a multi-day event, everything becomes relative, right? So a really long day, like uh, the other day I did 200 kilometers on a fat bike. And so a fat bike's really slow. It ended up taking me nine and a half hours of pedaling, which is a, a gargantuan number yeah. in one day. But then if you think of it in, the, in terms of a multi-day event, it's next to nothing. Um, so, yeah, how... I don't even know where the question is from there. I mean, <laughs> oh, right, go back to your training. Do you do traditional one-hour recovery days? Do you do traditional four-hour endurance days? How do, you, how do you train in general? Yeah, for sure. Like, I think a lot of people... Maybe a lot of people think like I'm doing crazy kilometers all the time, but the reality is like you just can't do crazy kilometers all the time because your body is like you're only human and you still need to recover. You still need to buy your food. You still need to send your mail. Like there's things you've got to do in a day. So like it's unrealistic to think that I'll go and ride eight hours every day because mm-hmm. it's just not possible. So like a typical week at the moment is like this morning I'm two hours easy. Tomorrow I'll go out and do four hours endurance. Mm-hmm. Wednesday I'll go and do five hours endurance. Thursday I'll go to six hours endurance. And then Friday I'll throw in some intervals, shorter intervals just to try and bring up the FTP. And Saturday's the same, sort of some longer intervals, and then I'll have a day off on Sunday. Yep. So like typically through the year that's pretty standard. 
but then I'll find coming into an event. So, for example, like, like this is a good example. Like, say a world the world record we did, which was three and a half thousand kilometers in a week. Great flick. Yep. <laughs> My big training block before that is I wanted to do at least fifty percent of that in a week. Wow. So. I wanted to do 1,750 kilometers in one week uh-huh. and I sort of threw in some challenges with that. So I went and did it at altitude and tried to cram as much climbing in as I could in each day so that I was getting sort of like 12, 13 hours on the bike each day just to try and like prepare myself more like just practicing my eating. And it's not so much the kilometers that I find get really hard. It's like, what happens when you lose your appetite? Like, what are you going to eat? Like, what do you crave? Like, what do you crave afterwards? There's things like that that you, it's really hard to train for unless you're actually doing things like that. And like, I think, you know, anyone can jump on a bike and probably ride it all day, but it's sort of managing the other things around it that becomes like the art form. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it's like, yeah, I'll do, you know, pretty standard seven, 800 kilometer weeks is quite normal. But then coming into an event, I'll do like some really big blocks. And it's always still like a bit of a managing act with fatigue because like if you overdo it, you just go into a black hole and it's really hard to manage. So it's yeah, yeah. it's a little bit of trial and error. That's awesome. I mean, I love what you said there about in a way training the unknown. Like yeah. objectively, we know what happens when you when you're, you know, you're gonna break down, you're gonna get tired, you're gonna need food, this, that, and the other. But yeah, it's that element of unknown that you really can't experience purely until you're doing it. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the cold weather riding um, that I've I've done a bit, you know, here in, in back in the states. Um, like you can train and ride your bike all day, but you don't know what's going to happen in the frigid cold temperatures purely until you experience it. So yeah, yeah, just sort of putting yourself into the into that unknown. Um, I Riding here, like where it's not even that cold, mm-hmm. like it's amazing how many more calories you burn and like just how much more hungry I am at the end of the day mm-hmm. as opposed to riding him like on like a summer day. So it's like things like that that I'm just so, so unaware of unless you try it. Yeah, yeah, no different with hydration. I mean, you gotta you gotta be pouring down the the fluids whether it's cold of winter or the heat of the summer, but it's just gonna be a a different volume as opposed to like yeah. a crazy hot forty degree. Girona summer day. Yeah, that's it. So, you know, you you were talking, your training is obviously spoken as a, as a well-versed cyclist. Going back to your early days, like as a kid, were you a cyclist? Did you have aspirations of being a professional cyclist? How, it, it's a two-part question. One, that, and then two, uh, like, do you have a trainer? How have you used training throughout uh, this this current period that you're doing? Yeah, so I started off with triathlon actually. Oh, no kidding. And I really enjoyed doing that and sort of competed all through school. Um, and then it was in my sort of final year of school, I gave it away just to sort of concentrate on studies. Mm-hmm. And it took me probably three or four years to come back to, to cycling again. And I went through a bit of a tough patch with some mental health issues and went into rehab for a little while with a, with a drug addiction problem. And when I came out of rehab, it was my old man. He said, well, you know, why don't you, why don't you jump on a bike again? And at the time I was not really into it, but I thought, you know, he's pestering me. I'm going to just do it to shut him up. And um, <laughs> it's probably the best thing, honestly, like the best thing I've ever done. Like I went for one ride and I remember 
going back to work that day and I was looking at bikes, like I needed to buy a, a bike. I wanted my own bike. I was hooked. Yeah. And yeah, I guess originally I had aspirations. Like if I do anything, I want to do it well. So I thought, oh yeah, I want to be a professional. And it sort of became apparent that I was never going to be a professional. It wasn't, wasn't for me. Uh-huh. Uh, but I came and did like a little stint racing in Belgium with a couple of mates and really enjoyed that. But yeah, it just worked out that racing wasn't really for me. I sort of, yeah, I used to get so nervous before an event that it sort of ruined the event for me and mm-hmm. I just didn't really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And at the time I didn't really, I didn't think that there was, how, how could you make a living out of cycling if you weren't sort of competing? I didn't really know how to do it. And I guess it's, it was never my plan to sort of be where I am now, say four years ago. Like I didn't really know where I was going to be. I just knew that I wanted to ride a bike. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I'm sort of lucky that I've ended up where I am now. And I think, I guess the moral of the story is like, you just have to put yourself out there and see, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to have a concrete plan. Like sometimes you have to go with the flow and things will happen. And I'm sort of, yeah, I'm super thankful of where I'm at today. But coming back to the to the training, I, I've i always sort of had a coach that's looked after stuff for me. And I up until this year, I was using a guy back in Australia. Um, just the, with the time difference and the um, – mainly the time difference, it's just difficult to communicate back and forth. Mm-hmm. So I've actually started with a, with a guy locally here. Uh, an Irish guy and uh, yeah we get along really well I think for me the thing with the coach is I need to get along with him like a mate he can be the most sciencey guy in the world but if I don't get along with him then I'm not gonna respect what he gives me to do (laughs) Um, and this guy Zippy here is like he's like a good mate so I trust him and I think for me that's the most important thing I need to put my trust in someone and for him I can sure yeah, and, and and to our dear listener, if you watched the uh, the most recent video, you're going to meet Zippy. You're going to get to know him as uh, yeah. as Jack did a a basic 3500 kilometer week. Um, so you, you touched on it there. You somewhere along the line, you I think I get into weightlifting. Yeah, at which point that that leads to some compromising decisions. Um, I mean, basically you've been public about it. You, you get into some party drugs and a pretty toxic lifestyle. Yeah. Um, I mean, are you comfortable talking about specifics of, of that period of your life? Yeah. Like I was essentially where I was at in life was I, I went to uni and was studying construction management and economics. Mm -hmm. And in Australia at the time there was a big construction boom. And what that meant was that like as young guys, we were guys and girls, we were in demand. Like there was a need for what, we were studying and so we all got jobs while we were studying hmm. and essentially they crammed the university into one day a week and we were working full time while we were studying and we were getting paid really well and this was great but I was still living at home and I was fortunate that I didn't have a whole heap of expenses at the time and basically I had a frivolous income. I was a young guy. I didn't really know what to spend my money on and I started partying and, yeah. I have an, an addictive personality and I started partying harder and harder and then found myself dabbling in all sorts of different party drugs and it wasn't until one day I came home from work and still living at home at the time and laid out on my bed was basically everything and my parents had suspected that I was sort of up to something like they could see in my behaviour and um, 
yeah, they basically searched my room and found everything. So it was laid out on the bed. And it was my dad. He said to me, basically just put it all on the line and said, unless you give up, then we're basically going to disown you. Like we don't, we don't want to be a part of this anymore. You know, you're living under our roof. You're, you know, we aren't paying any rent. You're not contributing and you're basically using us. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was like, I can't afford to lose my family. Like I have, I love my family. Like I love my mum and dad. I love my brother. Like we have a really good relationship and I don't want to forego that. And so I went to a doctor and the doctor at the time said, oh, you just need to stop everything. And so I basically came off everything cold turkey. Wow. And just went way off the deep end. So I was basically living a constant high and then just went way off the edge. And this was when I found myself in like a rehab clinic and uh, spent some time in there. And I was lucky my employer at the time basically allowed me to take some time from work uh, just to get myself back on track. And yeah, ever since then, I haven't touched anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was certainly like a, a wake-up call. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything that I've done. Like I've, I've learned a lot from that. Um, but as like a warning to others, like I wouldn't go down that route. <laughs> yeah, fair warning. What's the, what is the timeline there relative to where you are now? So university, you're doing these drugs at what, 18, 19, 20? That would have been around 20, so like 2010. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I'm 32 now. Yeah. So like 12 years ago. And then how about post rehab? I'm I'm piecing these pieces of the puzzle sure. back together. When does the bicycle, you know, come back into your life because I I feel like the bike has been such a positive influence on you. Yeah, I'd say like say 2011 came back back on the bike the following year. Uh-huh. And that first year was just racing around local streets of town and like riding with mates and my old man and like just typical group rides. Uh Australian sort of group scene is pretty healthy. Oh, it's strong. um, Yeah. So that, that would have taken us around to say like 2013. So I did that for two, two and a bit years. Mm -hmm. And then my coach at the time was taking a group of mates to, to Belgium for a couple of months, just racing Kermises. So I yeah, basically took some holidays from work and went and got my head kicked in over there. Yeah. And um, it's actually after that when I first came to Girona. So I, I had an extra bit of time off work and I thought, oh, I'm going to come and spend a month here. Mm-hmm. So I came here and trained really hard and thought I was doing all the right things and went back to Australia and got diagnosed with chronic fatigue. So oh, that was a bit of a kick in the guts. Mm-hmm. So I then spent a year where I didn't ride a bike and basically had to just rest and it was like worse than an injury because you can't do anything about it. Right. And um, that then brings us to around 2014 when I got back on a bike and I thought I don't want to race anymore. Like I'd sort of been tarnished a little bit by it all. And growing up we had a dad who adventured a lot on his bike and rode around the world when he retired. So we had this dad that was always off doing cool things and I thought I want to take a leaf out of his book and just start doing some longer stuff. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I guess the addictive personality got me. (laughs) Bitten by the bug. (laughs) Uh Okay, so, yeah, you're in Girona. You dabble in Girona. You're in Girona now after after bouncing around some, some other places. I think 
I say this with a bit of authority, but I have no idea if it's actually true. I say Girona per capita has more professional cyclists than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, um, I'd say you're right. I mean, it's it's got to be. Like, sure, there's Monaco and Nice, but like, it's nothing compared to there. How yeah. How is your interaction with the professional cycling scene there? Like, do you have buddies in the, in the tour? Do you train with them? Do you ride with them? Or is it just a totally different world? Yeah, like recently, last year, I didn't do a lot with any of the guys. Mm-hmm. This year, I've started doing a little bit with some of the guys. So um, Mitch Docker, um, there's a bunch of us that will go out maybe once every couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. At the moment, it's a little bit difficult just because everyone's on training camp. Oh, yeah. um, but I've actually quite enjoyed riding in a group again. I think I've spent so long just doing my own thing that it's a bit of fresh air, actually riding with others and interacting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've enjoyed that. I still would I still would like to do, say, 90% of the stuff I do alone. Uh, and then as sort of like a bit of a treat, I'll go out with others because I think, yeah, I enjoy the sort of lonesome aspect of it as well. Like I, I enjoy being alone. Like I like being in my own head. Mm-hmm. I think that's why for me cycling is like medicinal almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it's been good. Like I, I enjoy interacting with those guys and it's interesting chatting and getting different perspectives on things. Totally. Yeah, and it's a good taste of home. I mean, there's so many Australians who are who call Girona home, so it's good to get that, yeah. that Oz influence. Uh, and yeah, I totally appreciate what you're saying about training alone. I mean, it, it reminds me of what we were talking about. Like the only way to train the untrainable is to, to go experience it. So yeah, to go do 90% of your training alone is like you're going to see things that you're ultimately going to experience in that event, but you can really only do it alone. That's it. Going back to some, some let's call it mental woes. Um, in, in one of the videos that I watched recently, you say, growing up, I suffered badly from, from mental health disorders. Um, you've talked about the obsessive stuff. What, what in particular did you suffer from growing up? I suffered really badly from depression. Mm-hmm. And... Um, like admittedly, I still suffer from depression. Like I'm, I'm quite up and down, mm-hmm. and like I try to be, I try to be really transparent with it. Sometimes I prefer just to keep it to myself because that's like a way of me dealing with it. Is I just keep it to myself. Um, but I, it's sort of first, my first sort of realization that something was wrong was when I was probably about 13 years old, and I remember going to school and. I just, I could see everyone else was sort of happy and at lunchtime, you know, like joking around and I just wasn't happy and I couldn't work out why. Like I had nothing to be unhappy about. I had like, I was at a good school, like my lunchbox was full every day. Like I had good parents, like I was playing sport, like I had everything, but I I just wasn't happy. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I started talking, my, like my parents said, you know, you need to go and talk to someone about it. And I remember at the time, like I was, so scared to talk to someone about it because I thought, oh, this this means like I'm crazy, like I'm a lunatic, like only like crazy people go and talk to people. And I remember I went and spoke to a guy about it, a psychologist, and like I couldn't believe the difference it made actually just talking to someone about it, someone that was sort of outside of my safe little circle of, you know, like mum and dad and, you know, family. And... I found like he gave me some really good coping mechanisms and one of them was actually, you know, doing the sport, the triathlon, because it <laughs> gave me these little goals and, 
you know, every day I had a bit of a focus, whether it was getting up and going for a swim or going for a ride after work, after school or a run. I found these little goals gave me like a little box to tick every day and it just gave me like a bit of a sense of purpose. And I think what I was missing was at school a sense of purpose. Like I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't know how I wanted to get there. I was just sort of on a bit of a treadmill. I was getting dropped at school and going through the motions and asking questions why. And for me, I found even after like, you know, where I'm at now, like just having little goals really just keeps me on track um, and helps sort of keep the mental health stuff at bay, like keeps the depression away. I still have ups and downs and like I still take medication. Um, But I find if I can like string together, just like if I can just go and get a good session on the bike done, like my day is 90% better than if I have a bad session on the bike. It's like amazing the difference it makes. Yeah. That's wild. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the bike is therapeutic for so many, um, but, but it's, it's gotta be different when you are clinically, when you're suffering from clinical depression. Yeah. Um, and how about the, the age in which we live? You know, I mean, I think being more transparent about what your day-to-day looks like and, and trying to get this message out there of how much, you know, positive that you can, that you can derive in the world. It's got to be interesting in, in the age in which we live, which, you know, you have the power of social media, that you have the power of, of these videos to get that message out. Is that, how much motivation do you get from, from your ability to emote and to have a platform? I, I like it. it's, it's funny you ask this question because I was writing like a little blog piece today and it was like, what motivates me? And one of the, like there was three points. One of them was goals, one of them was food, and the third one was like motivating others. Yeah. And I, and I said at the bottom that that was like my biggest form of motivation. Like if I can get on a bike and actually, you know, like I'm just riding a bike, like I've got it really bloody good. But if I can do that and actually help people through riding a bike and if I can make one person's day better or if I can change someone's life around or like that is like a, a massive, like how good is that that I can do that just through riding a bike? Yeah. And like, like some of the messages I get, like the emails and like just people opening themselves up, it's like, like it's mind blowing. And I'm, that's what drives me to keep doing it. Like some days, you know, it's raining and you don't want to get out of bed. And mm-hmm. it's like, no, 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 come on, mate, get out of it. You've got it bloody good. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I get a lot of, I don't get a lot. I get messages about how it's inspiring the things I'm doing. And I'm, I'm doing what you're doing without that other element of messaging. Like I'm going out and having a good time on a bike because I still love riding a bike and I work with great sponsors. You're doing it with, with such a secondary level of, you know, you have a lot of people on your shoulders, so to speak, and you're really, you are riding on behalf of them who, are, who aren't able to, to be so public about the things that they're suffering from. So, yeah, shoot, that's massive. Yeah, I, I, like, I love it. Like, it, I, I think it... Like after cycling, like what's going to happen? Like I want to go down that road. Like I want to explore that more. I want to try and help. So yeah. it's given me like, you know, you, you don't always have these plans like we were talking about, but like, you know, maybe something happens and you can go down that path and oh, I'll be happy. I love it. How about um, to ride ultra distances will also uh, inflict some physical maladies. So here we are. It's now, it's what, late January. So I did my five-day Arkansas trip. November, December, January, three months ago. I still have tingling in my fingers. 
that's yeah. the extent of my my physical maladies. But yes, you know, you can have incredibly sore wrists. You can develop tendonitis, uh, loss of feeling in extremities. What are your well? What's your worst injury you suffered, and then how do you how do you deal with this? Given that this is like your everyday track now. So I'm just touching the wooden table while I talk to you here and answer this one. But yeah. The worst one I've had is literally the same as you. It's like the tingling in the fingers. Uh-huh. And I think like my bike position for me has played like a pretty big role in that. I think I think up until now I've probably been a little bit too aggressive on the bike and sat a little bit too low at the front. Uh-huh. And while the bike looks good at the coffee shop and you've got running a lot of drop, like it's not really <laughs> practical for, for yeah. riding 500 kilometres a day. And so I'm... I'm actually riding my gravel bike more at the moment than my road bike just because it is a little bit higher and I just pop my, my road wheels in there. Totally. And it's amazing the difference that's made. So, yeah, I, I probably, same as you, spend a couple of months with the, just the two uh-huh. smallest fingers, um, not having a lot of function in those. Yep. Uh, but thankfully it's come back. So I'm, I'm pretty keen to keep that function there. So I'm working on it at the moment. Yeah. How about... Do you take any protective measures during a a super long distance event, and so as to mitigate that? Like, do you find that you're stretching more? Do you find that you're mo- using your hands in all the different positions of the handlebars? Do you like get off your bike and do jumping jacks or anything like that? Or are you just like, boop, pop the stem no, up no, a little no. bit and call it better? <laughs> I haven't. Like, that was one of the biggest learnings from this this record that we did last year. Was like. I really need to do something about these hands because if I'm going to try and do like multiple events in a year, mm-hmm. then I need like the hands to be working. And so, yeah, we did like a bit of a review afterwards, like what am I going to change for the next one? And in addition to like changing some things for the bike setup, it's like just doing some super simple little exercises with the fingers mm-hmm. to keep them active. Because I think what happens is you sort of like on the hoods, and I don't know about you, but I sort of lock my two little fingers underneath and hold the handlebars and then yeah. use sort of two indexy fingers to change gears. Yeah. And so these two fingers are basically just locked away for 15, 16 hours a day, which I think really affects the blood flow to the finger. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of, yeah, like trying to open them up and stretch them a little bit while on the bike. Yeah. Um, like I'm a bit of a obsessive stretcher and like I'm always – cracking my back and like doing my own chiropractic style <laughs> stuff, which is probably not good, but I sort of feel like I need to do that just to keep me limber. Yeah. Um, but yeah, again, there's a limit to how much you can do when you're like in an event, you know, if you're on the gravel or if you're sleeping two hours, like, you know, you've got to prioritize, like is sleep more important than stretching? Well, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, a bit of a managing act. hundred percent. I, Immediately after Arkansas and for the subsequent two, three months, I was, uh, well, (laughs) so here in the United States, we have private uh, medical care, private insurance, and we had a child this year. And so, you know, we've used most of our annual deductible. And therefore I was like, okay, I almost have free medical money. Like I want to go explore what is happening with my body. So I got, uh, I did some CAT scans. I did some EMGs, which is the craziest thing ever. It's where they poke you with tiny needles. Uh, similar to to dry needling, and they're hooked up to electrodes, and they can listen. They can listen to and look at the electronic, the electric, the electricity that's happening in your muscles. And 
they're doing that so as to see where exactly in your body the nerve damage has taken place. And so exactly yeah. like you, it's ring finger and pinky that are suffering yeah. from tingling, loss of sensation, loss of strength. Um, and it was fascinating because pre, especially pre that final one, the EMG, they didn't know if it was a neck issue, a wrist issue, and an elbow issue. Because um, uh, all of those things can still manifest itself in the exact same symptoms of loss of finger feeling in those two fingers. Um, so I think everything you've said is exactly right. Yeah, it's like locking up those fingers. It's also the movement of your neck, which is why have, being in a more upright position is beneficial. It's stretching in general. But ultimately, for me, what they found it was the compressed position of a hand and wrist on the handlebars. And so they, uh, okay. they, did, they said it's the ulnar nerve for me. I mean, it could be anything for anybody. Yeah. Um, in my, as I first started going down the bikepacking world, it was, it's so, it was eye opening and helpful to hear that, you know, the best bike packers in the world are doing very limited events because it is so punishing on your body. Yeah. And I think like, that's like a super valid point for like anyone listening, whether it's like bikepacking or ultra riders or anyone like the recovery, how important recovery is and like the scheme of things. Like up until this year, I'd, well, no, last year I hadn't really taken it too serious. Like I've just battered myself and, mm-hmm. you know, I figured I'll bounce back. But like the more you read and the more just like experience doing longer things back to back to back, like the recovery is as important as the body training. Yeah. I think it's so overlooked. Big time. Um, well, yeah, shoot. So, you know, Christian Meyer there in town. As soon as I got back from Arkansas, he told me he did two back-to-back bikepacking trips within days of each other. Like, not not just trips, but but massive of like events. Yeah, I was just shocked because at that point, that's when the finger sensation really, or lack thereof, really started manifesting itself. And then I'm thinking, like, what have I done wrong that there's no way I could fathom doing another event? Like, yes, your yeah. body is destroyed, and your digestive tract is destroyed, and your undercarriage is not extremely happy, and <laughs> you're just like. To fathom doing event to event was so bananas to me. And thankfully, since then, I've, I've caught up with Christian and he said, yeah, that was a rarity. Like, like you're <laughs> saying, it's recovery, man. It's recovery, recovery, recovery. Like for example, for the world record, like one of the things I was a little bit nervous of was like just being in the saddle for so long, like, you know, saddle sores and, you know, just comfort on the bike and, Working with Velocio, Brad suggested I reckon you should run the the Concept Nix. Mm-hmm. And for those that are listening that don't know about the Concept Nix, it's like the chamois not sewn into the Nix in like a traditional manner. It's almost sandwiched in, but not actually sewn in. And um, basically ran these Concept Nix for the seven days and was saddle sore free, like no ailments at all on the undercarriage. Mm-hmm. For those looking for like a good ultra distance bib, the Velocio concept range is killer. Nailed it. Well said. Yeah, I described that chamois as I've described it before as floating. So right, yeah. there is there is some sort of magic that that Brad has designed in there. Um, it is just this next level of of engineering. I mean, you you know, you could think that there's only so much engineering that can go into a bib, but it is. It's super cool to see where Brad's mind has gone with that one. Yeah. 
It's like it doesn't catch on the, like I find like I shuffle around a bit on the seat and it's like it's sort of, you're right, like it floats on the saddle. It doesn't catch anywhere, which is, yeah, saddle comfort on long days is mm-hmm. important. Ain't that the truth. When, when you're doing a long event, here's a question for you. Like what do you miss the most? Like is it, you know, like sleep or like what is it that you sort of crave? That is a great question. From the comfort of my bed right now, <laughs> I, my knee-jerk answer would be food. Uh, yeah, like you know, I really like good food. I like, I like cooking. I like the culinary experience. Um, I wouldn't say sleep because even through multi-day events, like you're you're pretty hyped up on in, on a you know endorphin yeah. rush, um, and you can get by. And you're like, wow, I just survived the past few days on two hours of sleep every night. Yeah. Um, but then counter to the answer of appetite, like you, you do lose your appetite and I have a pretty yeah. iron stomach. Like I could eat a, you know, a McDonald's, I could eat McDonald's for three meals a day and, and still yeah. get through a bike pack event. Uh, I don't know, probably just the sheer element of normalcy. You that's, know? that's like what I'm going to say, like that normal life where you can just sit down and actually enjoy or actually look at your phone guilt free or yeah. I can just sit on the toilet or something where it's like <laughs> I'm not being rushed or I'm not like being timed. It's just, it's almost yeah. like you're in prison and you just need to escape. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And it's what was cool about, I mean, I keep on hearkening on Arkansas because that's the one that I've done. I, le- I, I have a friend in Bentonville, which is a start town, and I go and do this, you know, 16, what was it, 1600 kilometers, 1000 miles. And I come back and I feel like in your mind, it feels like it's been a month. And yeah. then in reality, it's like, oh, I just saw my friend five days ago. Like that's not all that long ago. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's in a way it's this, I can't even imagine what it's like to be in prison, to have you know the, the, the notion of time tick by so slowly with no end in sight. Whereas in these events, there's always an, event, uh, an end in sight. That's it. Yeah, it's um, funny you crave the simple things. Totally, totally. So the events that you're doing, you've talked about it. Like you have a team, you have a mechanic, you have a swan. You're often not always at these events. You have your dad driving. What are what are the the thing your favorite things that you are taking with you? Like, do you have your favorite way to make coffee or your uh, particular meal that like you need to be dialed and you're just eating like a robot? Or what are the? I'm the definitely Nessies? not a coffee snob. Like as we speak, I'm drinking a cup of Nest a cup of Nest Cafe. Out of boy, blend decaf. Uh huh. Some of the best. What do I? Like, I love good music. Like, I need good music. So, like, I remember doing that Everesting challenge. My, um, I was running one of those iPhones where you still had to plug in, you know, like, it sounds, it feels like years ago now where you actually had to, like, plug your headphones into the bottom of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a normal audio jack. Uh-huh. And um, the audio jack just stopped working literally, like, day one. So, I did all three of those with, with no music oh, and that killed, no that's a lie on the last one in Andorra my old man gave me his iPod and it was some of the worst music I've ever listened to <laughs> like it was better than nothing <laughs> like that's James awesome. Bond yeah. <laughs> but um so yeah like good music's a necessity um like I'd prefer to sleep in a bed for two hours than in a bivy so like I'd prefer not to carry sleep not that I do that sort of stuff. Like I haven't done a lot of the bike packing stuff of late, but like I always like to get a good night's sleep, 
you know, a bed's better than in the in the top bunk of a van or something while you're driving. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I wouldn't. Some people would say I'm fussy. I wouldn't say I'm overly fussy. Like I'm pretty easy going. Like I don't need a lot to to survive. Yeah. Um, bow, like you know, just nice. good sugars. Sure, I like it. Yeah. Um, I do recommend anybody who has not seen your videos absolutely go to YouTube, check out your videos. Um, you know, you've been, you've been filming them for years, but I feel like only recently they're coming out. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, they're incredibly, incredibly well produced. There's obviously a high element of professionalism to them. How are you producing them? How are you, how are you funding them? Um, like how that has that whole thing come about? Because I feel like modern media of really good videos is, is still quite modern. Yeah, it's super expensive. Um, essentially, like I'm really lucky to have good sponsors and especially the sponsors helped me to put those videos together. The first couple was basically like an investment for myself. Like, like you know, if I want to, it's like a small business. Like if you want to try something, you have to put capital into it. And for me, it was like, yeah, I'm going to put my savings into it and see what we can do with it. And took a bit of a risk, but I'm now at a point where like really lucky to have like the good sponsors behind, like putting putting um, cash towards that. But I also sort of like try and work with different tourism boards and try and work different angles where I can try and like actually work for someone else and actually get a benefit for them. Um, so we've got a project coming up later this year, fingers crossed, in Portugal. Um, where we've teamed up with the Portugal Tourism Board to to show off some bits and pieces in Portugal. Um, but, yeah, the, the problem with the film stuff, as you know, it's, it's just super expensive and time-consuming to put together. Um, and, yeah, like a lot of time and effort goes into just putting a storyline together and trying to work out, you know, what shots you're going to use. And I'm lucky to have some, some mates sort of that work in that industry um so it's been like awesome to have them on board and and assist um but yeah long and short of it is bloody expensive and i'd love to do more but it's just cost prohibitive bingo well yeah so as you're piecing together what it means to be jack ultra cyclist the professional like you say you know it takes the initial investment of capital and it's sort of you've created a proof of concept which is remarkable and it's awesome because it's so it's so unique i mean you're you're an ambassador without having experienced world tour cycling i mean and and you have such a gravitation and such a a a really engaged audience which is awesome like how are you picking and choosing events uh given where we are with covid you know i mean it's a hard time to be traveling and creating so like i've i've got Basically, this year I've got four major plans. So two of them are within Europe. Mm-hmm. One of them is obviously in Portugal. We just touched on the others in France, so that'll be based around the tour. So I'm sort of hoping that you know things in Europe have settled down a little bit, and I'm lucky in that I don't. It's not like a mass participation style event that I'm undertaking, so I'm lucky in that regard. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about the hundred other people that I have with me or the, you know, the crowd around the tour, for example. Um, but yeah, the travel restrictions are a bit of a worry. But I re- I'm remaining positive at this stage. Like I think, I think things will, things will come good. And then the stuff down in Asia, 
I've got two plans in Asia, one in Bhutan and one in uh, Japan. Um, yeah, it's a matter of time. I guess we have to wait and see what happens with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm sort of working on some plan Bs. So, yeah, let's see what happens. Sure. I'd like to think everything can go ahead. Well, it's served you well this far, certainly. I mean, the positivity of just saying like, well, you know, let's let's see this door open and go through it and see what's on the other side. Yeah. When, when are we going to link up and do something? When do something with Veloccio? Oh, heck yeah, exactly. Well, right. I mean, I, it, it's funny looking at, at your website and proposed schedule included like the, the race formerly called DKXL. And it's funny because like that's only that's only a 500k ride. Like in this age of ultra hyper distances, it's so it's crazy to like to even let your mind wander about where you're going to go next and what adventure you're going to do next. You know what I think is weird? Like if you go on Strava today, like there's people doing two, three hundred kilometer rides every day, mm-hmm. and it's almost. I was thinking about this yesterday. Like it's. I remember like three or four years ago, if you said you went and did 250 kilometers. It was like mind blowing. Like that's a bloody big day, mm-hmm. and it's almost like it's been normalised now, which shows like it's super cool that people are going out and doing these crazy things. But it also, like you said, like it poses a question: like how far can you go? Like, yeah. what's next? Like, how crazy can it can it get? A hundred percent. And then it, you know, you're you're butting up against the wall of your body can really only withstand so much be it yeah. in a day or a week or whatever it is. Yeah, the day that is either the day or the weekend that I did I did this 310 miles, so 500k ride the entire length of Vermont. And it was the middle of the summer last year and it was the same day that Wout Van Art had only done 200 miles. And so there I am doing 50% more and you know like yeah. a little bit of good media from it they're like, "Wow, Wout only rode 200 miles." Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> would Yeah, crazy. Would the world's record in a year, does that kind of thing ever interest you? Or do you like having a little more creativity to it? Or And not to take anything away from that, because that is an absolutely bananas record that is set. Yeah, I'll, maybe one day. Mm-hmm. Like I sort of like the artistic, maybe, maybe artistic is the wrong word, but like the creative side of it as well. Like trying to come up with a concept where you can like work with a country and highlight tourism things and also like a mental health message. Like I like trying to like massage that into like a solution. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's not put me off racing, but like racing for me doesn't really excite me. Like, like it doesn't excite me, mm-hmm. but like trying to put an idea together. And for me, that feels like I'm working towards something and I'm like creating something and setting something up. And I, I guess I get like a sense of satisfaction in doing that. And for me, it's like, it's again, it's like ticking a box exercise. Like I enjoy it. So I'm going to continue doing that. And that's, yeah, I like, I like working with people and trying to find solutions. And maybe it's like the uni degree behind from the years, years gone by. But like, you know, it gives me like a bit of, yeah, like pride and working towards, you know, putting something together. Yeah. Love it. I mean, it shows the passion in, in what you do for work and then it, it it is fun because it does tap that creativity bucket. Uh, yeah, it's so that's awesome. So, zeroing in on some final questions as we're zeroing in on an hour. Here's I I have 
a traditional series of three questions that I'm not going to ask. These are three questions that I've just made up right now. So whether you have lived this day or not, give me the who, the what, the where of your best day ever. On a bike. It could involve a bike. Like for me, it would definitely involve a bike. Yeah. All right. I would say who was with my dad. I would say he's like my ultimate riding partner. Where would be somewhere in Bhutan. We did like a trip where we crossed Bhutan together one year nice. on the gravel. And that was like just one of those trips I'll never forget. Like it was mind blowing. Yeah. And what was the third one? What? Well, you sort of hit it. Yeah. The what, the where, the who. Yeah. Uh, like riding across Bhutan with my old man. Yeah. It was like seven days. I think one of those days would be like all time best. That's nutty. I, don't, I know nothing about Bhutan. Where is Bhutan? Oh, it sounds what? Southeast Asia? It's like, it's in the Himalayas, sandwiched okay. between India and China. Oh, man. And it's like this tiny little country, landlocked country, Buddhist country, where it's like no animals are allowed to be killed in the country. Like TV and internet were only introduced 11 years ago. No traffic lights. Like, in, like just like Wonderland. Yeah. And the king of Bhutan is actually a mad keen cyclist. <laughs> and... Um, so one day we were looking in the paper at home actually and there was this advert that was saying like Australians could go to Bhutan and the taxes were basically 50% off taxes for, for this one year, 2018 or 2019. Uh-huh. And my dad said, you know, would you be interested in going? Like have you got enough money saved to come with me? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, fuck, let's go. <laughs> so we basically had no idea what we were in for. Flew into 2,500 metres was where the airport was. Man. And day one, we climbed up to 4,000 metres. <laughs> I remember we were both at the top there just sucking in big ones, <laughs> thinking, what have we got ourselves into with these food and these Sherpas showing us around? It was unreal. Man. Was, uh, how much of that did you wing and how much did you have a plan? And like, are you sleeping in hotels? Was that a bike packing trip? What was that all about? Yeah. Basically, in Bhutan, you've got to be accompanied by a guide the whole time you're there. Uh-huh. And it was crazy. Like we'd said to each other, yeah, let's go to Bhutan. And then literally out of the blue, like I got an Instagram message from a tour guide in Bhutan saying, oh, if you're ever interested in coming to Bhutan, I'd love to show you around. And we were like, whoa, what are the chances? And so we basically, yeah, shacked up with this guy. We planned a bit of an itinerary. He told us where we should go to and from. And we worked out, all right, we want to do about 100 kilometres a day. And basically that took us from the far west to the far east and then down into India. Uh-huh. And, yeah, we, it was a bit of a wing job, but, like, honestly one of the best trips. Wouldn't Can't recommend it highly enough, Bhutan. That's legendary. Well yeah. done. Okay, so the spontaneous nature of that answer could be interesting to see where you go with question number two. Where do you suppose you see yourself in 10 years? 10 years. I'd like to say living in Asia somewhere. I really like Asia mm-hmm. and potentially doing something with cycling coupled with mental health. So whether it's with kids or teamed up with a hospital or something, trying to get people on bikes yeah, and doing something scientific with people, bikes and mental health in Asia. Love it. Love it. Um, so you're, you're, Apparent real-world superpower is the ability to endure, is to persevere. What superpower do you wish you had? 
Ooh, I wish I could eat more and not put on weight. <laughs> like oh, a bottomless stomach. A bottomless stomach. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, you're in quite a, a culinary capital there in, in Catalonia and Girona. Do you? Yeah, super good. You, you into the tapas? You into the, the high cuisine? What kind of food do you like over there? So like the typical thing we'll do on a Sunday is it's a little bit difficult at the moment because things are sort of aren't really open, but yeah. on a sun, oh, Saturday and Sunday, you can go out for lunch, like a typical Spanish lunch. Mm-hmm. And with Sunday being like day off the bike, it's always, yeah, let's pick somewhere nice for lunch and go do, they call it like the menu of the day or the menu del dia. Yeah. And you get like a starter, a main and a dessert for 12 euro or something. Right. And yeah, like so good. Just at the moment, like the sun's been out sitting in the sun eating good food, good friends, like, yeah, can't beat it. That's hard to beat. Um, have you done a, a proper calsat outing? Oh, the, I have, yeah. Oh, my Lord. that's It's like the most unappealing sounding thing to tell somebody, like, hey, we're going to go have this grilled onion lunch. Yeah. But you bring the, the culture of Catalonian lifestyle and this exquisite, you know, four or five hour lunch uh yeah if if anybody has the privilege to go to spain in what basically the spring definitely do a calsat outing it's just started now actually the restaurants have started serving it up oh nice they're like yeah it's sort of like cold you go in and they come out like on a bit of a grill and mm-hmm. i got that real nice red sauce yeah. you know, peel back the layers and wash oh and you're <laughs> filthy yeah you're like you're covered in soot yeah, afterwards yeah, it, yeah 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 it reminds me of eating like uh well, here in New England, like lobster, you end up smelling like the food that you're cooked. You, you have yeah. it head to toe. It's just filthy. You need like an apron to eat. Yeah, exactly. Oh, too good. How about, this is one that I, I meant to ask a while ago. You you had talked about uh, one of your videos that you had diagnosed OCD. How does yeah. a diagnosed case compare to what people would just say in general vernacular, like, oh, I, I have OCD. And then even as a third comparison, how does that compare against like the manic lifestyle of a professional cyclist where, where they often are very orderly and they're like, I need this, this the way and this way and this way. Yeah. But none of those are clinical. So mine, and I, like I, I'll give you an example of like one of the ones I did and then I'll talk about like why, for example, that may have been like clinical. So I almost created these rituals in my mind where if I didn't do things, mm-hmm. I convinced myself that something bad was going to happen. So as an example, I used to be really afraid of jumping in an aeroplane just because, like, I wasn't in control. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't like turbulence. Like, everything about flying used to just scare the hell out of me. And so every time I jumped on a plane, I basically developed this ritual that I had to do. And for those that are listening, they can't see me doing it, but I'm going to show you because we're on video. So Mm -hmm. essentially I'd have to blink twice so I'd – blink twice and then I'd have to like hold my lips like this so I'd squeeze them. He's squeezing his lips with his fingers as though his lips are a duck. I'd then do like as if I was praying but rather than my hands being like my fingers being straight out, they'd be like in a ball. Uh Uh-huh, clasped clasped hands. And then I'd, I'd have to nod at my hand like this. But like I wasn't just doing this once every hour. I was doing it like every minute. Like it was relentless. And to like an outsider looking in, 
they would have been like, well, like, what, what's this guy doing? Like, uh-huh. and like, I had like multiple bits and pieces like this where, like, I knew it was wrong and like I shouldn't be doing it and that like it wasn't healthy and it didn't make sense, but I couldn't control that. Like, I had to do it. Mm-hmm. And like, little things like, this is again, like, it's when I talk about it, like, it sounds stupid, but say I'm walking down the street and I see somebody that I knew. I had to wink at them, so I had to close my right eye. And for me, that was a sign, yeah, I know them, like, yeah, that's all good. But if I saw someone that I didn't know, sort of within close proximity, I had to then close my left eye because for me that was my way of saying, no, I don't know you. Uh-huh. And there was no reason why I had to do it. But I just, in my mind, like, I had to do it. Like, I couldn't not do it. And it was this fear of what was going to happen if I didn't do it. Uh-huh. And so walking on cracks in concrete, couldn't do it. Couldn't walk on a crack because my fear was that there was going to be a syringe in the crack and I was going to step on the syringe. Yeah. Like crazy things. And I don't even know where they started from, but they were things that I sort of <laughs> I had to deal with. One of them was I had to tell my parents when I left home, love you, I'll see you soon. So I had to say I love you three times. Uh-huh. So I remember one time I had a mate around and we were going out for a surf or something and I had to say, I said to my mum, all right, see you, mum, love you. And, you know, any normal person would then walk off and go for a surf, but I then had to say it again, all right, love you, mum. She'd say it back and then a third time, love you, mum. Yeah. And my mates are probably thinking, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Like, <laughs> what is he doing? <laughs> but I couldn't control it. Yeah. And this was when I got diagnosed with like, Clinical OCD, I still do the thing, like, no, I don't do anything like that anymore. But, like, when I go to bed, for example, I like all the cushions to be put up against the couch nicely. I can't have any dirty dishes. Like, things have to be in order in the morning. Otherwise, I start the day with, like, a messy head. Uh And, like, even talking about these are little things I don't even really realise until I talk about them now. And I'm like, whoa, like... Mm-hmm. that's pretty controlling but yeah that's just me well yeah and I think that's maybe that's the difference of uh, clinical versus unclinical like like you said you know you, you, you like to wake up and have your house in order literally I'm in the same boat like I like things orderly and I like to do the dishes at night so I can put them yeah. away when they're dry in the morning <laughs> but that I mean it's almost just like the the slightly obsessive nature of being a cyclist like you have to live yeah. a pretty disciplined life to to bang it out. As you were giving the first two examples of being on the airplane or walking down the sidewalk, are those things that you would consciously do, but then you're also consciously aware that you might be being observed and so you'd sort of do them subtly or would you just yeah. own it? Yeah, and I knew that it was not normal and I was embarrassed by it. And I think, like if I look back now, I probably didn't, do as much, like I didn't go out as much as I, so like a normal kid of my age would have done. Like I probably sort of sheltered myself a little bit because I was embarrassed and I was nervous and I was just sort of a bit of a nervous guy. Like they, it's just like anxiety all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think these sort of things helped me deal with the anxiety because they sort of gave me like a bit of false hope. Like, oh, if I do it, it's all going to be all right. But at the same time, it was like a bit of a negative loop because then I thought, no, well, I don't want to go out because someone's going to see me doing it. And then so I'd sort of hide a little bit at home. Mm-hmm. If I look back now, it feels like another life. Like I'm 
like it's sort of like a little bit scary to look back and think, whoa, like, like I was pretty not in a good way back then. Um, yeah. It's like, wake up. How do you suppose you've come to where you are in the present? Is it, is it being able to converse about it? Is it uh, being on particular medicines? Is it some other thing? I mean, how, how is it that you see that as a different life? I think now, like I've worked out ways to deal with it. So it's like, for me, it's the miniature goals every day. So like one of them, I, I got this from a Goggins video. It's like, make your bed when you get up. Mm-hmm. And that's already like, you're doing something positive. You're starting the day off with a tick. Mm-hmm. And like everything I do, I try and optimize it. So yeah, the, the sort of what I'm trying to get at is like, I've got these like managing techniques that I sort of channel that energy in a good way. So for me, it's like getting on a bike and riding 500 kilometers. I can convince myself that like I can sort of tap into it a little bit and convince myself that oh, if, if I do this, this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I sort of play with it a little bit. Um, yeah, I think that and the combination of like I take antidepressants and I've sort of been on them now for, I don't know, 16, 17 years and I'm, I'm I sort of figure like if I have a chemical imbalance, you know, why would I come off if, if they're not causing me any harm? Like I'm, I'm happy to take them, I'm happy to talk about it, I'm not sort of ashamed or anything. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess the combination of like, coming up with my own coping mechanisms and the, um, the medication has definitely gone a long way in helping and talking about it. Like I'm not embarrassed now to talk about it. I don't care that I look like an idiot back then because yeah, it was me and that was all part of the journey. Sure. Well, there must be such a hard time to, to first recognize that you have issues at the age of 13 because it yeah. is such a time that you're so self-conscious and so, I mean, you know, every 13-year-old in the world is awkward. And yeah, you know, whereas you know you get to a certain point in life that we're at now, and it's just like whatever, this is me. Uh, I yeah. own it. I'm more than happy to be public about it. It's ah, uh, yeah. Teenage years are hard, man. <laughs> I think the best now of times. as well. Like, can you imagine how hard it must be now as well. Like with the pressure of social media. Like, I don't know when I was 13, like I was on, I was on MySpace, but yeah. MySpace was nothing like Facebook or Instagram, mm-hmm. and like it was sort of normal to wear clothes that were a bit dorky. Like now, if you, you never see a kid in dorky clothes, like kids no. look bloody good these days in what they wear. Yeah. There's a bit of sense of fashion. Accurate. Yeah. It is. It's terrifying Scary. right now, raising a, raising a child. And thankfully Hazel's young enough that hopefully Facebook and Instagram are, are long gone by yeah. the time she's of age, but then who the heck knows what she's going to be. Who knows? Having to contend with. Who knows? Sheesh. We're not going to end on a negative note. Let's end on a positive note. Uh, what is, what's the best thing you did today? Uh, best thing I did today, I got, a, I got the old beard trim. Oh, man. Is that why you're looking so sharp? The haircut and the, yeah. the beard was today? I got this for you, mate. Oh, that you're looking awesome. Yeah, unfortunately, we weren't <laughs> recording when we first got on the mic. Folks, when you watch these videos, you're going to see a bearded, long-haired Jack. Uh <laughs> You're looking dapper. You look like you look like you came straight out of a Hollywood shoot. You're looking sharp, bro. <laughs> now the new look. I'm going for the '70s look, so I'm trying to go the sideburns a little bit. Got to uh, keep it. I love it. Game. I love it. <laughs> looking good. Nice. Well, 
Jack, this was a very long time coming. I appreciate your patience. Um, I really appreciate the time. This is uh, this it. has been a heck of a lot of fun. I enjoyed it, man, and hopefully we can do something cool together soon. Truth, yeah. If you're ever coming to this side of the Atlantic, let me know. Uh, likewise, I'll let you know if I'm headed over yeah. to, to your side of the sea. For sure, man. Sounds good. Cool. All right, Jack, have a great evening. Thank you very much, man. See you, man. My, oh, my, Jack has some stories to tell, eh? There are many stories that we've told here on the King of the Ride podcast. You've just successfully listened to episode number 70. That means we are slowly zeroing in on that three-digit 100-episode mark. I do thank you for listening. If you have just 10 seconds more, I encourage you and appreciate it when you do, head over and leave a review. Now, of course, five-star reviews are appreciated, but honesty pays, so do whatever you think is right. Better yet, spend 10 more seconds and leave a comment. Those comments, those, those reviews are very meaningful. I thank you very much for listening. Oh, and like I said on the top of the show, next episode is a very good one. It's a, a tearjerker, perhaps, so please stay tuned there. That's it from here. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy the ride. <laughs>